you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. Hey there, welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. This one is episode 97 and I am your host, Oliver Banks, and your guide to delivering successful retail transformation into your operations. The customer is always right. The customer is king or queen. We are customer centric. How many times have you heard phrases like those being used in the world of retail? Yes, customer centricity is a huge topic. And so let's dive into that a little bit deeper. And to do that, I could think of no one better than today's special guest. He is the consumer champion. Today, I'm very delighted to welcome Martin Newman onto the Retail Transformation Show. Now, if you were at Retail Transformation Live in July 2020, then you will remember Martin as our opening keynote speaker looking at the future consumer. But if you were not there, then let me give you a little intro to Martin and then let's jump into the conversation. So Martin is the founder of the Customer First Group and also of Customer Service Action. He's a force for positive change, both for consumers and for brands. He's got a wealth of experience across the industry. He was actually the founder of Practicology. But prior to that, he actually built up a wealth of experience across a number of different companies, particularly in the world of e-commerce in its very early days. So he worked at Intersport, Harrods, Pentland Brands, Burberry and Ted Baker, for example. And he's also been a non-exec director or board advisor for a number of different companies, including Wiggle, Conviviality, White Stuff, Yext, Clearpay, Down Your High Street and the Scout Store, to name but a few. He's also regularly appearing on a whole series of different media outlets, including BBC TV and radio, as well as a number of other different channels here in the UK. And he's an author too, with 100 Practical Ways to Improve Customer Experience. So Martin has got a ton of value to share, and I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Show notes from today, including all of Martin's contact info, can be found at obandco.uk slash 97 obandco.uk slash 97 so without further ado here is my conversation with martin newman the consumer champion here we go so i'm very glad to welcome mr martin newman to the retail transformation show martin how are things things are great ollie thanks for having me well, thank you for joining me on the podcast and thank you too as well for joining me on the virtual stage at Retail Transformation Live. You did an amazing opening keynote. So thank you very much for that as well. Okay, lovely to say so. Thank you. Well, the feedback was just just amazing. And what you were talking about there was the future consumer. It's something that we're we're obviously talking about all of the time in the world of retail. And often we're talking about customer centricity you know yeah we're all customer focused we're customer first etc cetera, etc cetera. lots of different ways of putting that same statement mm. we are customer centric and it's obviously important but how many companies are really customer centric versus just talking the talk but not walking the walk so to speak and and why is there a discrepancy there mm, great question 
well, I would say you could count on a, on, on probably a, a few of your digits on one hand. How many businesses are really walking the talk mm. right across the whole gamut of what it entails, what you need to do to be truly customer-centric. And obviously, we can go on and talk about what my, my thoughts are in relation to what you a business needs to do to be truly customer-centric. Mm. I think, therefore, lies part of the challenge. So maybe if I turn the clock back for a second and go back to the 1990s, 1994, when the first e-commerce transaction was conducted online, and I think that up until that point, arguably, retailers held the balance of power. And what I mean by that is that as a consumer, you had relatively limited choice. Mm-hmm. You could go into your local high street, your local town. You could maybe get on a bus or a train and go to the go to an out-of-town shopping center. And, of course, some brands had catalogs. But the internet really changed everything, and it, and it began – what I think of as the democratization of retail, mm. both for businesses to enter the retail sector, but also for consumers. And I think it what it led to ultimately over the over the subsequent sort of twenty-five years, twenty-six years now, has been the proliferation of choice. And that proliferation of choice for consumers has meant that it's become even more important for retailers to be customer-centric. However, I still think that as of today, the majority don't necessarily know what that means, Mm. nor how to execute it. And I think that's why many are not walking the talk. Can I just pause you there, Martin, and so everyone is on the same page? Let's just spend a moment to define what it does mean to be customer-centric from your perspective. Yeah, of course. Well, to be customer-centric, I mean, I, I created a framework around it called the six Ws. And the reason for that is I felt the marketing mix wasn't doing a good enough job of explaining, you know, what, what a business needed to do to be customer-centric. So in my six Ws, I talk about who or whom is it the business is targeting? Why does that customer want to buy from you? What is it they want to buy? When do they want to buy? Where do they want their order fulfilled? You might think of that as channels what's next, what's in it for them if they buy from you. And I think that's the key. It's the kind of it's the kind of understanding who the customer is and what's next. We invariably focus too much, I think, on the top of the funnel. We all tend to think of acquisition, mm. customer acquisition, how much they cost us to acquire a customer, return on advertising spend. Very few focus on customer lifetime value. Mm. I talk to businesses day in, day out and when I asked them about the contact center and the customer service side of their business, almost always viewed as a cost center and not a profit center. So retailers are looking at the cost to serve rather than the benefit to serve. Mm. And, and I think that's where it all falls down. And I think that going back to what I was saying a minute ago about 1994 and that sort of transfer of power from the retailer to the consumer, I think that's the fundamental lack of understanding that some businesses still have, arguably at board level. It's a whole kind of change in mindset in terms of, you know, how you structure your business to the key performance indicators and the targets that you give to different business units. Because to get people to deliver this, you need the whole business sort of pointing in the same direction. Mm. And um, the problem is at the moment that 
you know, even if you go back to what I was saying about the contact center, you know, most contact centers and customer service teams are being measured, for example, by how many calls were answered within two minutes or how many people Mm. had to hold more than two minutes. I mean, that sounds like a sensible KPI because you don't want to leave customers holding on the line. The problem is, I think what it leads to is it leads to other operators getting rid of calls quicker than they need to uh, in order to meet that KPI. Mm. And so you end up with customers actually, you might meet your KPI of answering all your calls in two minutes, but ultimately, if all the customers that get through to you leave dissatisfied and haven't had a resolution to their issue, then clearly it's not worked. So <laughs> so a good tip, not just to pick up the phone and immediately hang up and onto the next call, no? Exactly. <laughs> of course, I'm not, I'm not intimating that that's, the, that's exactly what happens, but it does drive a different type of behavior. And maybe another example would be logistics. You know, when you look at the last mile of the business, mm. You know, I've had responsibility for that part of the organization when I was owning e-commerce when I was on the client side. Mm. And and often the distribution center, you know, they might be incentivized by how many, you know, by how quickly they get orders out the door. Now, that's great because in principle, that means the customer gets their order quicker. However, if the focus is only on how quickly you get the order out the door, there's a risk that you might end up picking and packing the wrong product. You might not pack it properly. It might be damaged. It might not go out with all the, you know, with with all the different elements and components that need to be a part of that order, and and therefore, when the customer receives their goods, there may be an issue with it. So again, there's a risk that if you're only looking at that KPI in isolation, you might end up actually not, you know, fulfilling what you're trying to do, which is get the customer their order as quickly as possible, but make sure more than anything you send them the right item that it's packaged properly, that it's got, for example, if there's a gift message or something else that has to you know, go out with the order um, because you were focusing on speed and not necessarily on quality. You're spoke- focusing on quantity rather than quality. Yeah, it's the right intention, but because it's not been defined quite clearly enough, it ends up yeah. driving the wrong behavior. Right. And I'm sure we've all got lots of examples where we've seen that happening and exactly. different shortcuts to game the system, to game the KPI and ultimately yeah. get a good report, a good review, so to speak. Yeah. And so let's let's go back now that we understand that. And I think that's probably almost answering the question as to where the discrepancy really comes from and how it represents itself in reality. What are your thoughts on why companies say they're customer-centric, but perhaps don't act in that same way? I really think it's a cultural thing. And so I think partly it's about not having the organizational structure in place where you've got... I mean, in reality, you're, you know, you're the king of transformation, right? So if you want to transform... <laughs> it's my new title, is it? The king of transformation. <laughs> It is your new right? You have been anointed officially. So, you know, if you want to transform a business, I know I'm sure I'm teaching granny to suck eggs here. So apologies, Ollie. But if you want to transform a business, again, you've got to have all the moving parts, you know, pointing in the same direction. So my point about, you know, if you want to be a truly customer-centric business, if you've got different business units who have competing or conflicting key performance indicators and targets that they're being measured against, then you're never going to make the transformation that you need towards being a customer-centric business. So you need to have everyone aligned from that point of view. Mm. But I think it's it starts earlier than that, and it starts higher up. Culture, for me, is something that's both top-down and bottom-up. 
It has to come from the board. It has to come from the people who are running the organization. But then it should also be something that's ingrained in any individual when they come into the business. Yes. If you had a clearly defined customer-centric culture um, that you, when you were hiring people, you'd be hiring people, obviously, who were a cultural fit and people who wanted to go the extra mile and, and, and you know, both for their colleagues and, and, for, and for customers. Mm. I think culture is, I do think culture is the heart of it. And my framework for driving customer centricity, actually the first building block in it is not about being customer first or putting your customers at the heart of all you do. It's actually about being people first, i.e. your own colleagues, your own employees. Because if you don't look after them, if you don't provide an environment that proves to them that this is a place where they should want to spend the rest of their career, even although that might be unlikely these days. But, you know, mm. you've got to create an environment that people want to work in. That should be the intention, right? Yeah, exactly. And where they, where they can buy into the values of the business, the culture of the business, and feel that they're working for an organization that's doing things the right way, looking after its staff, looking after customers, looking after the environment that is diverse in terms of thinking about all the different forms of diversity, mm. you know, including gender, sexuality, ethnicity, disability, etc., mm-hmm. um, and all the things that you have to do as an organization to really do the right thing in this day and age. I think these are the elements that create an environment or help to create an environment that people want to work in. Mm. And, you know, Generation Z, who are both, you know, the current and future customers for many of our retail businesses as well as the, the, the sort of current and future workforce. Yeah. They're the activists. They're the ones that are leading a lot of the change that retailers will ultimately need to go through to prove that they have got environments that the Gen Z want to work in and that they know what to do when it comes to their customers. Yes, definitely. I, I love how thinking about that future generation and how they will come and play a part in the workplace you know, it's going to be a shift, obviously, for the retail market from a customer perspective, as you say. Yeah. But from a culture perspective, thinking about what those Gen Zs have gone through in their lives so far, yeah. thinking about everything from particularly the last five or six years, there's been arguably more conflict, more aggression in the world. We've seen lots of riots, lots of protests and so on. Of course, coronavirus as well. By the time they, uh, they grow up, that will have been yeah. a long time in the past. That's going to shape the organization quite significantly. Yeah, I've, I've absolutely no doubt that it will do. But, but, you know, they won't allow themselves, I don't think, to be defined by that. But they, mm. will, I think what I'm saying is they will define the future. I really believe that. I mean, the, yeah. you know, the one segment of consumers, if you go back over the last sort of 50, 60 years, who have arguably had the biggest impact on society and retail as an industry are the baby boomers. But I think there's a very big difference because I think, you know, the baby boomers were born out of the Second World War, similar in the context of obviously, you know, the last probably big global sort of seismic event that affected the world in the way that coronavirus has, Mm. obviously in a different way, but similar-ish to some extent. They were born into 18 years of consecutive growth, you know, very strong economy, Everything in the world was great. And they were, they were activists in their day as well. You know, they, they were driving social change, mm. but not in the way that Gen Z are. And, of course, probably the best known Gen Z globally is Greta Thunberg. And, mm. 
you know, the climate change movement and, and everything that's been going on there in the last couple of years. You know, these are not these are not trends. These are ultimately transformative moments and transformative movements because mm. there's a recognition there that obviously if we don't sort out our response as organizations and as individuals to the climate, then our legacy, we won't have a legacy. You know, there won't be a world there for whether it's our children, our children's children, or our children's children's children. And Generation Z, who are our children today, uh, are doing something about that. Mm. And they're also the forces for change behind a lot of the, whether it's Black Lives Matters or, you know, any other um, significant issue that they are facing into that they've been through, as you described a minute ago, or will be going through. And they will be the change makers and they're the ones that will define you know, what our businesses look like and what the retail world looks like, in, you know, both now and in the future. Mm, that's fascinating. So, you know, if, if we then think about, okay, so what does it mean to have a, a customer first or customer centric culture? How do you start to make the changes? <laughs> well, yeah, I think you first of all have to, and I don't want to sound too challenging now, but I think, mm. I think the reality is, as I said, it has to start at the top. So a business has to have the right leadership. You know, it has to have the right person at the helm that recognizes both the, you know, the absolute imperative to be customer centric um, and also to provide and, faci- and be the facilitator for that. And, you know, I talk about the CEO being essentially the change agent. Whilst a business can bring in someone like you or I or another contractor or somebody else on the outside to help drive some change within the business. I think ultimately the CEO has to be the person that really facilitates that change within the organization. Mm. You know, because I I don't think you can leave that to one person. You know, businesses have been hiring, you know, chief customer officers or creating that new role or calling them a customer director. Mm. And that's a good starting point. But you can't expect that one person to be able to drive the degree of, change required in the business to become customer-centric on their own. Mm. They can define what it should mean to be customer-centric, but they can't drive the change because, like I said, often you've got other directors who you ultimately need to be on this journey in order to facilitate that change. Mm. You have conflicting objectives and KPI. So you can't have the CEO delegating accountability for becoming customer centric to like, like you say, a customer officer. Yeah. Correct. That's a really good way of describing it. And also like you're saying, it's not just a one department thing, right? It's a whole company thing. So all of the other directors, heads of chief, whatever officers, they all need to play a part in this as well, right? They do. They do a hundred percent. So the key performance indicators and the targets, the objectives that the different business unit heads would be given might be slightly different, but they're ultimately all going to be facilitating and helping that transformation towards being a customer-centric business. So go back to what I was saying about logistics, for example. You move from only looking at, you know, how quickly did you get all those orders out the door to how many of those orders, for example, were delivered first time, how many of those orders that were delivered were delivered intact, mm. you know? Um, so then you start to look at returns rates and you start to look at why were, why were orders returned and how many of them were returned because they were sent the wrong item mm. in the first place, for example. So you start to put in place the right measures which become in, the, in themselves facilitators 
towards driving the change required across all the different parts of the business. I mean, at the end of the day, let's be honest, if, you know, no matter what you do in the business, whether you're the CEO, the buying director, the customer service director, the marketing director, the chief digital officer, the CTO, the retail director of the stores, whatever, if you're being remunerated by a set of objectives and key performance indicators, then that's what you're going to deliver against, right? Mm. Because why would you risk your own remuneration <laughs> um, to do something differently, right? And But that's why they have to be aligned. That's why they have to sort of feed into each other. And everybody has to have a set of targets, objectives, and KPIs that are aligned with driving mm. customer centricity and what that means, particularly within their part of the business. And particularly, I think, if the vision is changing or where the company's strategy is going, that has to then fold down to all the different levels so that those objectives, those KPIs do shift and reflect the new world. Because otherwise, if you just change it at the top and, like you say, people are being measured and, and rewarded by the same old behaviors that they used to be, yeah. then it's going to be a really tough uphill battle to get people to adapt to the new world when perhaps they don't get rewarded for it as well. Exactly. But, you know, that's another reason why not only not if it were me running a, a retail business today, not only would I ensure that everybody, including myself, had, you know, relevant metrics to make sure my part of the business was driving and doing my bit towards helping contribute towards that move towards being a customer centric business. But wouldn't you also incentivize the whole organization? So whether that was a net promoter score or CSAT or customer lifetime value, mm. increasing retention levels, but why not why not you know have part of the incentive goes across the whole business so that everybody feels that they're a part of this and they have a part to play in delivering it. Mm. That I think really helps to start to get everyone moving in the right direction and get everyone really bought into it and and behind what the business is trying to do. Definitely, definitely. This is so good, Martin. Thank you. I'd like to take a slightly different direction right now. So empowerment is often one of the big words that's used in case studies when you look at companies that have been identified as customer centric. You know, Zappos empower their, their call center workers to be able to resolve customer problems with whatever solution they see fit, for example. Yeah, right. What are your views on empowerment? How much of it is so important? I think it's 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 basically just about the most important thing you can do. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I mean that. Empowerment is just about the most important thing you can do. And it comes back to what I was saying about, you know, being an employee first organization, looking after your staff mm. and empowering your people is as important as anything else. You know, every individual wants to feel they've got a part to play, you know. What, otherwise, why turn up to work every day? Mm. And that is where empowerment comes in. Let me give you a really practical example. I talked about this in, in my first book, 100 Practical Ways to Improve Customer Experience, available on Amazon. <laughs> I wrote about this in my first book, and um, I was in Miami on holiday um, about basically six years ago now, and it was coming up for my wife and I, 20th wedding anniversary. And I was with my wife and my kids, and we were in the Bar Harbor shopping center, and we went in to this store called Balenciaga. Now, I have to admit to my ignorance because at the time I didn't know who Balenciaga were. I didn't, hadn't heard of the brand. But I realized straight away what this was all about. <laughs> very expensive handbags. And, you know, my wife and eldest daughter picked up this bag and they went, oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? And they looked at the price and they went, oh, and it's so much cheaper than it is back home in Selfridges. 
<laughs> so at this point, I said to my wife, Laura, I said, okay, Laura, it's coming up for a big number, a 20th wedding anniversary. Do you want that as a gift for your wedding anniversary? And she said, no, 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 no. In fact, if you buy that for me, I'll be really angry with you. And of course, being a man who reads women's minds, I knew what she actually meant was, yes, 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 yes. And if you don't buy that for me, I will be really angry with you. And you may be heading for the divorce courts. <laughs> so I understood where this conversation was going, but I didn't buy it there and then because what she was more or less saying is, don't buy it for me here. Surprise me when we get back home. Mm. So we came back from our holiday, and of course, I, I realized I had to buy this gift for my wife's anniversary. I looked on my phone. I realized I, could, I remembered they said I could get it Selfridges. I went online at that time, bearing in mind this is six years ago. Selfridges couldn't get it to me before my wedding anniversary, which was on the Wednesday. And this is now the Monday morning, right? I'm back at work. Mm. And I also had no availability to get to Selfridges. I was literally rammed with uh, meetings. So I thought, okay, where else can I buy it? And I found Matches Fashion. I thought, that's interesting. I'll buy it from there. Looked at the terms. They could deliver it to me on a Tuesday evening, which is perfect for my anniversary on Wednesday. But they couldn't get it to me until between 6 and 9 o'clock at night. I was going to be out for dinner. So this would normally be quite a convenient proposition for most customers. But because I was out for dinner with a, a very important client, I feared I wasn't going to make it back in time. So I called the contact center. I explained my predicament. And I said, if you can deliver this, between eight and nine, not six and nine, I'll make sure I'm back for them. And their response was, really sorry, but our courier doesn't offer that proposition, mm. right? So as you can imagine, I was slightly aghast. <clears throat> this bag is a 1,200 pounds bag. So I said, can you give me the courtesy of asking the courier whether they would deliver between eight and nine o'clock at night? Took down my name, took down my number. Do you think he phoned me back? No, he didn't. So not even a phone call. So a potential lost sale of £1,200. Now, I still bought the bag because by this point, I'm completely stressed out in my head, locked into the purchase, thinking I'm going to be divorced if I don't buy the bag. And I got lucky and I got home about half past seven. Jane, this is a true story. And the bag turned up about half an hour later. Mm. Now, I got in touch with Ruth Chapman about this and she was kind enough to let me interview her um, for, for my book, which I did. And so then she views in there. But essentially, I said to her, Ruth, I said, this is about one thing and one thing only. This is about empowerment. Your contact center don't realize that they are empowered by you to do the right thing for the customer. They think, because you haven't told them that, that they need to do everything by the book. It's as simple as that. Mm. And I know, because she was gracious enough to tell me, off the back of that, they changed. They empowered their staff. They gave them the ability to do the right thing. They stripped away a lot of the layers that staff would have maybe had to go through previously to get authority to do something. And, and they made the business much more customer-centric. So, you know, and, and I'm sure that had made some contribution to their ultimate success and sustainability of the business. Mm. Oh, it's a brilliant story. I love that one. Thank you. It's a great example of actually how, again, the intention can be there, but if it's not been followed through or clearly stated, then it can drive the wrong behavior. Yeah. No one intended, you know, perhaps staff to do the wrong thing or play by the book, for example. Yeah. It's a, it's a great story to illustrate it all. Thank you. Martin, I'm also dying to ask, we touched on it earlier as well. When we're thinking about culture change mm. or customer-centric cultures, but we're also living in a world where we're remotely working at the moment. 
Yeah. And when we're thinking about actually how a culture can be created and lived bottom up, how does that work with remote working where we're not sitting in an office? We're not having those sort of coffee moments or sort of the meeting pre-chat, post-chat, etc. that does, I believe, play a really important part in forging that culture. How does that all play out in the remote working world? Sure, good point. Well, first of all, you know, again, it depends on the nature of the organization and where it's based and where its employees are based. But I wouldn't necessarily advocate that, you know, a chunk of the organization never comes back into the office. And I think what will probably happen, um, particularly in bigger businesses, um, but it might happen even in smaller organizations, is that they meet, you know, at the beginning of the week. So, for example, in my little business, you know, we have a stand-up. We are, I mean, at the moment, we're actually doing it every day. Uh, we're doing it via Zoom, and that's our way of connecting and keeping in touch and seeing each other. Mm. But, you know, when we're back in the real world, we would have a stand-up on a Monday, and we'd talk about what, what we were all doing that week, what's happening in the business, what our plans were. Um, and then when we came to the next week, we, we'd briefly talk about did we achieve what we'd hoped we were going to do the previous week, and what were our plans and things we're going to be working on in the following week. So I think organizations will probably still do that and will probably ask most of their people to come into the office, have the big company meetings, the town hall meetings, if you need to have a cross-business meeting, and get teams together, um, maybe on a Monday, maybe even on a Tuesday, so you can have all your meetings done and then work from home for the rest of the week. So I think I think it's going to be more of a hybrid model like that. Mm for most organizations. So I think that would help. So you can still use that sort of face-to-face time to help build and construct that culture for sure. Exactly. But but again, as I, as I was just saying there with regards to doing what I do in my little business, you know, with Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever it happens to be, you know, just having a regular everyday stand-up with the people you're working with day in, day out, project team you're involved with or whoever it is. Yep. And just have a quick chat about what the plans are for that day. And that's a great way to keep people in touch. And it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be laborious. It can be, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, quick touch in. What are we all working on today? What do we hope to achieve? Great. Let's catch up tomorrow. And I think that FaceTime, you know, really would really help to keep people feel connected and part of the culture. Great tips and something actionable there. Absolutely. For people to take away. Thank you. So again, let's let's just shift through the gears here a little, Martin. Sure. With holiday and peak trading, you know, really just around the corner now, relatively, there's going to be a really big focus on safety for the first time, really, this year. Mm-hmm. What tips or suggestions do you have for retailers to think about how to be customer centric as they trade through the peak period, you know, delivering both safety, but also performance as well? Mm, great question. Well, I mean, you know, obviously, there's been a shift to e-commerce. So if you're not already in e-commerce, and there aren't many that fall into that bucket, but there are still some fairly notable web brands like Primark, mm-hmm. I know why they haven't gone down that path. And I think it's got a lot to do with um, their model and the price points they sell at. And I think they have this perception that they would struggle to make it profitable when you look at the pick and pack costs uh, compared to their average order values, etc. But I, I think they could use their stores as fulfillment centers, and that might be one way to to reduce the cost to serve from that point of view and maybe make it more viable. But obviously you need to be online. If you're an ind- a small independent retailer, you can get onto platforms like downyourhighstreet.com that give you a route to market digitally. 
and through mm-hmm. your commerce and you can extend the reach outside of your own high street. Um, if you're a more significant retailer, then I think you need to think about being where customers are. And, you know, for me, that doesn't just mean digital. That means physical. And I've often thought, you know, we can see already there's been a move towards shopping locally. Mm. And as many as many of us continue to work from home, and that's likely to continue to be not only a trend, but also a permanent change for a certain percentage of the workforce yet to, yet to be defined what that looks like. But let's imagine even 50% of the workforce all of a sudden are working from home on a permanent basis. Then if you're not where they are, you're going to lose out. So what happens to all the retailers that are currently in the West End of London, for example, when the tourists aren't coming and also the domestic workforce is reduced dramatically. So they've got to take their brand both digitally and physically potentially to customers. I've often wondered why, you know, I mean, John Lewis just shut down a small format store in St. Pancras, but I've often wondered why, you know, the bigger brands like John Lewis don't trial smaller format pop-up stores in more local areas. I really think there's opportunity there. And I think that this moment in time that we're going through is going to lead to an increase in independent retailers and opportunities for them, particularly in the local area. So I think it's about physical and about digital. And also, when I talk about digital, I mean, you might have your own website, but is there an opportunity to be on Amazon? Mm. You know, you might, you might have turned your nose at them in the past as a brand and thought, I don't want to be there. I'm worried about Amazon copying me or, or whatever. But, you know, the reality is, through the pandemic, you know, there can't have been too many households in the UK didn't place at least one order on Amazon over that period. Yeah. Because you can obviously buy anything from them. and, and you know, they were, they, they were there for us, obviously, in our in our, our needs. So Amazon is another route to market and uh, as are other marketplaces. So I'd be thinking about how do I make sure I'm going to be where my customers are. Yeah. And I think that piece about Amazon absolutely is important. It's, you know, so many customers now are going to the Amazon search bar rather than the Google search bar exactly. to start off their search, which I think is a a massive cultural shift when you think about the disruption that Google has brought to the world and how we live, and now that is being disrupted by a different search bar. Well, that's right, because, you know, if you search on Google, I mean, obviously you've got, you know, Google shopping shopping ads and everything as well. Mm. If you just go into Google and, and do a product search, you don't just get products back. Mm. Whereas when you go into Amazon, that's you do. <laughs> yep. So arguably, in terms of the, the response you're looking for as a consumer, you get more choice at that point and then it's easier for you to ascertain, you know, what price you might be back paying and, and availability and delivery times for certain products that you're looking to buy. So I suppose there's a there's a convenience factor to it as well. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Martin, this has been a great conversation. We've dived into lots of different elements actually, all about customer centricity. But just before we do wrap up, how can people find out more? How can they get in touch? Thank you. Well, they can they can email me, uh, martin at thecustomerfirstgroup.com. Um, I also have a website called customerserviceaction.com where I'm trying to be a force for positive change for both consumers and brands to help find resolution for some of the issues that customers are facing into and help brands do an ever-increasing better job of serving them, which obviously has a big benefit to customer time value. Mm. Um, so those would be the main ways that you can get me through the website. You can find me on LinkedIn. Twitter at Martin Newman, or you can just email me, like I said, martin at thecustomerfirstgroup.com. Super. Thank you so much. 
great to have you on the show. Thanks, Ollie. I appreciate you having me and uh, keep up the good work. Love all the content that you produce and, you know, being the probably arguably one of the first protagonists of the virtual conference. Well done, you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a format that I, uh, I actually quite like. I think there's quite a lot you can do with it. Um, lot, lots more still still to come so uh, thank you for, for playing a part in the second version of Retail Transformation Live as well once again so that was Martin Newman there rocking it up here on the Retail Transformation show I hope you enjoyed the conversation there were lots of interesting insights in there and a few golden nugget ideas for you to take away and put into action straight away do remember to check out the show notes page, which you can find at obandco.uk slash 97. If you enjoyed today's episode, then do go and check out a few more episodes. I'm going to suggest you scrolling back a little through the archives and check out episode 94, which is about finding and fixing customer frustrations. And I'm also going to suggest you check out episode 81, which is all about becoming customer obsessed. And as I mentioned earlier, Martin was the opening keynote for Retail Transformation Live. And if you'd like to check out the closing keynote speaker, then you can listen to Joe Jackman's conversation here with me on the Retail Transformation Show. And that is episode 87 and 88. So a few different episodes, number 94, number 81, and number 87 and 88. I'll put all of those on the show notes. So if you can't remember, then do go and check them out obandco.uk slash 97. So thanks for tuning in. Do remember to click subscribe on your favorite podcast app to make sure that you catch all of the future episodes which come out every single week. And I'll look forward to joining you on one of those very soon. Bye for now. Bye.